There are dozens of genre film festivals around the world, and we either can't afford or don't have the time to go to any of them. We're guessing a lot of you are in the same boat, particularly now. On Cinema Smorgasbord Presents Cinema Fantastica, we pick one of these festivals, a year in which it ran, and choose two films that played at that festival to battle against one another. On our third installment, we're heading to the 7th Annual Slam Dance Film Festival, which ran from January 20th to 27th, 2001, in Park City, Utah. This time, we're pitting Bong Joon-ho's first feature, Barking Dogs Never Bite, against the German coming-of-age film, Paul is Dead. So let's begin. Welcome to Cinema Fantastica, a trip through time and space to the genre of film festivals around the globe. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is my good buddy, Liam O'Donnell. But today, Liam, we are not good buddies. We are enemies, as we are tasked with pitting two genre film classics against one another in a battle to see which one reigns supreme. How are you doing today, Liam O'Donnell? I'm good. I think you're being very liberal with the use of the term classics right now. I don't yeah. know if that's true. <laughs> the, I think the festival is a classic festival, but I, I partly chose this festival because I don't know if this is true anymore, actually. I haven't looked at any of the more recent sure. uh, lineups. But at least at this time, this was an outsider fest, considering mm-hmm. it's you know its proximity to Sundance and considering that at least some movies that did make it big have premiered at this John. Uh, at this point, 2001, not a lot of things that would have an impact on the culture, really. It, it, it's, it's, it's a pretty outsider fest. It was, it was interesting to look at the lineup of the year 2001 and to see what kind of and what stature of films were playing at Slamdance. And in fact, it's probably even a stretch to call this a genre film right. festival. It's not really. It's just a you know, real-ass film festival playing all kinds of different movies. I mean, I think it's a genre festival in that at this level of independence, you tend to get more genre films. But Fair you're, you're right. There's a chunk of drama here. I, I will say, though, the idea that like a genre fest could only be like horror and exploitation has always kind of run me the wrong way. Occasionally, other fests I've been to, including, you know, the Danger After Dark at Philly Film Fest or mm-hmm. Fantastic Fest, have featured movies that are just um outsider takes on topics that might normally be hollywood but there's something about them that are that's edgy or pushing the envelope i think that's the thing with slam dance there was definitely some dramas at this fest but if they were dramas there was something about them that set them apart from the usual sundance fair right yeah and in fact in this case we are pitching uh, or pitting i should say two movies that are so very different against one another which is one of them is a coming of age kind of drama and the other one is a pitch black comedy one from germany one from south korea i mean it it is great because it it it's something that we've talked about before you get more of a sense here of the width and breadth of the kind of movies that are out there and in the case of one of the movies we're going to talk about today it's very possible that i would never have seen it if it wasn't for us doing this project and it's i'd say it's pretty possible that people who saw it at that festival in 2001 we're never able to see it again afterwards. It definitely isn't a movie that was very widely distributed. But uh, but yeah, I don't really... I mean, I know of Slamdance as that festival that takes place at the same time as Sundance, but mm. I don't have a lot of background on it outside of the fact that, like you said, it's kind of the the outsider festival for movies that, that either don't want to or can't get into Sundance. Well, I know that a friend of the show, Josh Goldblum, has gone a few times and in fact has scouted there for festival for films for his festivals uh and i know that one of my favorite programmers slash podcasters Dre clark of the who shot you podcast uh worked for them for a while first as an intern and then as a programmer so the last time i remember uh actually noticing films coming out of slam dance that got some heat was actually two films related to the la latinx punk scene one is what's up rockers which is a uh, more of a coming of age drama but also the documentary los punks now granted i think i heard about these things because of my music connections but they like had a life outside of slam dance but that's just two movies there are plenty of years i'm sure there's stuff that plays that is really great that i never hear about it like they just don't reach into my world it's amazing that when you 
dip into some of the smaller festivals and, and slam dance actually wouldn't even fit into that category anymore. But if you do like all across the U S there are these small festivals and you see movies that maybe they don't get distributed or they only have a small distribution and they just kind of fade away a little bit. You sometimes forget just how much content is actually out there, but I do want to talk. It's a little weird. Bit about- it's almost like we have two podcast topics based just around this theory. <laughs> I feel like that was a a pointed comment at me, Liam. (laughs) Frankly, I don't appreciate it. I do want to talk a little bit for those listening who don't know much about Slam Dance. They were first uh, held in 1995 by a, and this is from their website, a wild bunch of filmmakers who were tired of relying on a large, oblique system to showcase their work. Since then, Slam Dance has proven year after year that independent grassroots communities take risks on bold talent and launch careers that change the industry. Their artist-led community continues to discover and nurture Fellow creators through various programs throughout the year, focusing on new writers, digital and interactive art grants and mentorship, DIY film, education, film screening, and of course, the Slam Dance Film Festival. Now, 2001, Liam, was kind of an interesting year. It was difficult to uh, to pick a film to cover. So this, for just to pull back the curtain a little bit, we choose the festival first. Liam and I go through the list of films and we both pick a movie. Liam picked Barking Dogs Never Bite, Bong Joon-ho's uh, first film. Of course, Bong Joon-ho, who went on to be, I think you could safely say, one of the greatest filmmakers in the entire world. Yeah. <laughs> and just recently won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. And there's not really any other names of that stature on that list. So, um, and I was left, you know, doing a little research to try to figure out which of the movies I would uh, check out. And I also, Liam, I felt like weird about picking the movie that won all the awards or won the big awards that year. So I decided to go with one that had more personal interest to me. And that was the film Paul is Dead, directed by Hendrik Hengelegden. And I'm sure I massacred that. Uh, By the way, the year of 2001, the grand jury for best feature went to the film Hybrid by Monteith McCollum. Uh, And uh, the only uh, award that either of the films that we're going to be talking about today won was Barking Dogs Never Bite, which won the best editing uh, award at that festival. Kind of interesting, Liam, just to see where, you know, where people end up from from the places that they start. Uh, even though the director of the film I'm going to be talking about didn't go on to the massive success of Bong Joon-ho, it's not like he hasn't gone on to great success in other directions. And we'll talk about that when we talk about the films uh, proper. Any surprises, Liam, in this festival before we take our first break and we come back to talk about our first film? Um, You know, I... I was most surprised. So, like, my just to be clear with everybody, I was just looking at years of slam dance, and as soon as I saw Barking Dogs Never Bite played, I knew, oh, that's a Bong Joon Ho movie I haven't seen, right? You know? And uh, that's a director that I love, and I've seen most of his other movies. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to catch up. I didn't bother to look at the rest of the lineup, or else I would have noticed, hey, not a lot here that I'm familiar with. <laughs> I think that sort of fits. For us, in some ways, like part of this was thinking like what was going on at different festivals at different years and sort of getting to know like some more recent film history. So I think all that kind of works in a certain sense. Um, However, I did feel like I kind of left Doug up a creek without a paddle because he was taking a chance. I actually would have encouraged you just to choose whatever had been voted the best movie and hope that that was enough to go against mine since this (laughs) is a pretend contest in some way. I still feel good about my choice. I still feel superior, as per usual. I also think it's very interesting that Barking Dogs Never Bite simply isn't talked about in the grand scheme of Bong Joon-ho's filmography compared to even his next film, like Memories of Murder or Mother or Snowpiercer. I mean, they they stack up so massively in the minds of a lot of film fans that I feel like this one kind of gets left in the dust and for reasons that we'll, we'll talk about. In fact, Liam, I think let's take our first break. When we return, let's jump into it with Barking Dogs Never Bite. An idle part-time college lecturer is annoyed by the yapping sound of a nearby dog. He decides to take 
drastic action. It's the year 2000s, Barking Dogs Never Bite, directed by Bong Joon-ho, who you might have heard of, written by Bong Joon-ho, Ji-ho Song, and Derek Son Tae-woon, uh, starring no one that I particularly recognized, uh, but uh, um, Song Jae Lee, Duna Bay, Ho Jung Kim, Hee Bong Byun. Some of these people might be well known, but I didn't necessarily recognize anyone. Uh, an interesting dark film, Doug. <laughs> I know that you're going to pretend like this is not as good as yours, but I, I, I still want to know. What did you think of this movie? I assume you hadn't seen it, much like me. Uh, what is your impression of this film? First impressions. You know, I do something, and I don't know if anyone else does this. Maybe I'm just weird. I probably am. Sometimes when it's a director I really love, I intentionally don't watch one or two of their movies because then in my mind I can always be, that's always there waiting for me. You know, I can always get to that later and have something exciting to check out. Uh, I, I know that sounds so strange, but I absolutely do that with some directors. I'm not saying necessarily Barking Dogs Never Bite is one of those, but I've had this movie just sitting in my apartment for like two years, and I just have never gotten to it, and I love Bong Joon-ho. Memories of Murder is legitimately my favorite movie. Like, it's my favorite movie. I, I tell people all the time. So the fact that I, for some reason, have decided to put this to the side is confusing even to me. So now having watched it, I can say, Liam O'Donnell, that I like it. I like it a lot. It is very much a film displaying a director who is still trying to find his voice. So it feels kind of confused in some ways. Tonally, and in terms of the plot, it goes off on these strange tangents. There's this incredible moment where a janitor just tells this ghost story while he's in a basement. It also features a lot of dog violence, which, as someone who owns a dog and loves dogs, is a little hard to get past. Um, and the, the kind of lackadaisical approach to that violence, even though, you know, it, believe me, the movie... There's no question in the movie's mind. Hurting dogs is not a good thing. But the very fact that one of the people who is devoted to hurting that dogs is is not judged as this horrible person or this horrible character throughout is, I think, an interesting approach to take and one that maybe you would never really see in the West. This is a very dark comedy. Just me talking about dog violence and someone trying to kill a dog or hang a dog and you see dog corpses in this, uh, hopefully not real ones. In fact, it starts with a disclaimer saying that no dogs were harmed in the making of it. It's, it. It is a mixture of this kind of very uncomfortable content with this very dark and very um, strange sense of humor. And it's odd because those elements, that, that, that mixture of serious violence and strange humor is absolutely something that would continue on in Bong Joon-ho's career. You can see the the elements of it here that get refined later in movies like Memories of Murder. So I do have to say, I find this movie so fascinating while at some point finding it really, really unpleasant to watch. I'm glad you touched on that dog violence because it's not just the suggestion of dog violence. Yeah. But there's a couple of moments where he is very harsh to some dogs. Yeah. And and I get that they probably used like dolls or something, but there's a couple <laughs> moments where I was like, is he really fucking that dog up? Like it, it was it was hard to watch at times. And again, not in a joyful way, let's be clear. This this is not a movie that's like watch as we mess with these dogs, it's so cool. Like I think you you are supposed to think it's kind of horrifying to a certain extent. But mm-hmm. it is a film in which a otherwise not too bad character also eats dogs mm-hmm. and so i think it there's an interesting juxtaposition between the residents of this apartment block who apparently everyone gets little dogs all to like i don't know keep them comfortable or fill some sort of hole in their lives all these dog owners seem weird to me and then <laughs> and then their and then their janitor who is like not just he's not eating dogs to survive he is stoked on some dog soup he if someone's dog dies he wants to get at that corpse so he can make some dog soup and the film does not seem to judge him too harshly for that so we have two very juxtaposed attitudes towards dogs how did that make you feel doug as a as a well-known dog lover i mean i'm obviously there was some discomfort with it and there's also always that question in my mind, and I, I hopefully I don't come off as super insensitive here, that when it comes to the cultural differences in how people see, you know, uh, domestic, domestic animals, 
um, that 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 we are not fully grasping the intricacies of how that culture would would view these animals. Uh, not that I think that, and I don't want anyone to interpret it that I think all Korean people eat dogs or anything like that. But the fact is that the the very fact that the movie is willing to show characters who are willing to do what I see as these horrible acts in a sympathetic light is, is again, so interesting and unique to me that it just made me more engrossed with what I was watching because it made it feel like the rules were off the table, that you could, that they could just do almost anything. And that to me is really exciting when I really feel like they might show me or something that I'm just not prepared for. And I say that, you know, again, this is not a horror movie. It is a dark comedy and it, it is funny, like really funny in a lot of places. But it, you know, when you do have a scene later on where a character is literally trying to shove a like a spit up a dog's ass in order to roast it over a fire i mean and 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 that is presented clearly as as a horrific act i mean this is a movie that finds humor in some very strange places i think it's worth noting that uh the film does an interesting thing yes this character though you know there is a little bit of sympathy to this uh man who's living in the basement that's true uh but you know he clearly also has some crazy ideas and whatever like that but uh, our main character, well, let's not say main, but one of our main characters sure. is this uh, is this uh, semi out of work academic who is the one who is considering and then executing on dog murder, and he's juxtaposed with the janitor who, yes, eats dogs, but is not murdering these dogs. He yeah. is waiting for people's pets to die of natural causes before he's willing to cook them up and eat them in the basement. And uh, I do think there is some feeling that what he's doing is at least embarrassing. Maybe not that it's horrifying, right. but that it's kind of like weird. Like, yeah. uh, you dug up someone's dog to eat it. That's kind of weird. But it's not morally judged the way that you think this dude sucks. Like, even though, in a way, he's kind of our protagonist or one of our protagonists, um, the film is pretty clear that he's off his rocker. That like yeah. his desire to hurt these dogs is not like sympathetic in the least way that he is just going through something and whatever um the the like a lot of director bong's films uh this movie despite it having sort of this dark comedic turn also has a lot of stuff connected to real life and to Mm -hmm. social issues and stuff one of the first things that we're sort of struck with is what seems to be a truly unfair and immoral academic job market where you know our guy is not only out of work but he might have to bribe the dean just to like get tenure uh doug is is this what it's like to be a professor in canada is this what you're dealing with up there i know you work at a college uh have you thought about bribing anyone so you can do your job at a college i mean you'd have to think that the situation that we're seeing in this movie it comes from some sort of real place that 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 either the right one of the writers heard or or maybe is just common knowledge now i know you work in the academic field liam so maybe this is something you have a bit more insight on than i do i mean but, that's a stretch but <laughs> but i mean i the as you mentioned this the social issues are clearly on display the class issues are clearly on display here as you see in a lot of his movies our two lead characters if you can call them that the ones whose stories kind of intertwine they're de- they're both desperate in some ways, you know. They're both right. you know flailing and trying to find something, and because of their um, inability to find some sort of consistent comfort in their life or to reach the uh, standards in which they put in front of themselves, th- it causes them to act in in unusual ways. Uh, it, it's strange uh, when we get to the ending how that actually ends up for the characters, right? Because you can. Get what you want, and and maybe you get some satisfaction in that. But depending on how uh, out of reach that thing that you want is, that satisfaction might be very, very different. I love the idea that the closing mm. credits hit just as we see one of the characters just you know just hiking in the woods and getting some real satisfaction out of that. And I have to say, in twenty twenty, <laughs> that does feel like something that could be very satisfying. Sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. I think. Well, and I think it's worth noting that. Um, I think all of uh, uh, Director Bong's films connect with universal themes that we can all identify with, but they also all contain granular particularities of South Korean society. Mm-hmm. And what I've noticed is a lot of us don't know anything about that. Yeah. You know, uh, one of my favorites is reading reviews of the host 
And clearly, <laughs> if, if you don't know about the student protests in South Korea, which I didn't know, but I was willing to do the academic research of looking up on the internet to figure it out when I saw that movie, then like parts of that movie don't make sense, you know, like, or, or at least they don't make as much sense as they could. I don't think that means you won't enjoy the movie, but I think in the same way, like if you don't know the dire straits that people are in, in this country at this time, then it might be harder to understand, like, man, this guy's life is pretty desperate for a underemployed academic. Like, right. you know what I mean? But but it is, though, you know, like there's a lot seemingly at stake and there's a lot of pressure on him. Um, I don't think the film is entirely sympathetic to him, though. Like, I don't think it's right. a story where you're mm-hmm. supposed to be like, oh, whatever. But as with anything, um, it's a f- it's or with any of his movies, it's a film in which we see how larger social forces can compel people to be awful, you know. And, and I do want to talk just a little bit about this lead character, Yunju's he has like a domineering domineering wife right and and that's you know look it's she she is thoroughly unpleasant we are not supposed to like her at all she makes him crack walnuts for she's pregnant uh and she is just terrible to him for most of the running time there is an amazing sequence where they're walking back from a store and she tells him to go back to the store because she forgot to purchase something and he's already got his hands full of groceries and they start arguing about how far back the store is and he decides to prove that it's further than she thinks by taking out a roll of toilet paper and rolling it towards the store which is just such an amazing moment in the movie and i also like that the movie seems to imply that she's kind of impressed with it that because maybe it's because he stood up for himself in some way because you see her later kind of like like uh, knocking a piece of toilet paper like a roll of toilet paper around and you can see that there's some something there it's just what you were saying before liam really speaks to me which is that there is a level of this movie that almost anybody could appreciate and then there are secondary levels that have to do with the culture in which it's made and that it's yeah. referring to that I just, maybe even if I did tons of academic work, I would never be able to fully appreciate. But of course, that's how the, the best movies tend to work, right? I always think about, you know, if, if, if I was from a completely distinct culture from the U.S. and I saw like George Romero's Dawn of the Dead for the first time, would I be able to appreciate the, and, and I know that, that the, the statements in Dawn of the Dead are pretty in your face, but if I have no connection with that sort of lifestyle it would i still be able to appreciate it as just this fun actiony zombie movie and i always wonder that when i'm watching movies that have different cultural components and that comes to, uh, to as someone who doesn't live in the u.s and well, that watches a lot of united states based movies well and i also wonder if that's if that's going on here too like what is the significance of these little dogs do yes. they suggest class do they suggest uh some connection to other cultures i do think the janitor eating uh the the dogs it's not presented like it's gross it present it's presented like it's hokey and embarrassing i wonder if it's seen as something old people do because they don't know that that's not okay anymore which is different than like the way we treat it which is like oh it's so gross you know like whatever which by the way is a little weird i don't want to necessarily eat a dog but to act like well they're a different kind of thing is strange as a person who sucked the meat off of many of a bone you know to act like well the 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 meat that i eat is somehow sanctified by something i mean it does bring up a bigger question that i don't know if this movie is interested in asking which is the idea of like domesticated animals we all know that pigs are as smart or smarter than dogs we know that there are other animals that are intelligent enough to realize what is happening to them right. and i mean look there are many many times an increasingly large number of times where i think of myself as a monster for eating meat and knowing that i'm part yes. of that system and wishing that i could detach myself from it but also and uh, again i don't want to make excuses for myself also living in a class system where cheap available meat is sometimes the most accessible form of protein that's going to be available to me. I, again, I I say that with the knowledge that a lot of it is also comes directly on me. I don't want to make excuses for the decisions I make in my life. But I do think that, that you, that's a great point to make, Liam. It's just not one that I think that the movie necessarily cares about. No, yeah, totally. But I do think it does probably connect to what you're pointing at which is an economics issue that there is class at play in this film. Uh, and, and the fact that all of these, we're not presented with anyone directly who is like, it seems to me 
living living high on the hog, so to mm-hmm. speak. You know what I mean? Like everyone, and, and and I think that's interesting because I think in this country our attitude towards academics, which is often not true, is that they are part of the elite. They're like you know up upper class whatever, and you know that's true for a very small percentage of people at very elite institutions. But a lot of academics are just kind of living paycheck to paycheck. Sure, you know? absolutely. Um, and 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 doing a lot of work to do it. So I thought that was interesting in this film to see that more that like. You know, this dude went to school thinking this was going to be maybe not easy street, but a way to establish himself. And and mm-hmm. I think that's I think what you were saying about his wife is sort of connected to this class question. Right. Not only is he underemployed and she has to work for them to live, but she's doing it while she's pregnant. And I yeah. and I wonder if in some way there is that connection of class and gender. It's almost like she's punishing him. Like mm. what exactly is your role here. And I think what the film does very interestingly is he lives into that. The 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 issue here is not that he's like a, you know, as our right-wing friends would say, a cuck. It's <laughs> that he's given up, right? He's he's he she can demand anything she wants from him cuz he doesn't seem to have much life left in him. He's not really interested in like getting his life together and it it it's only when he's given the most ridiculous option of like bribing the dean that he has some hope that his life is going to get you know out of the dregs and we don't see him lead up to his breaking point as the movie starts he's already reached it i mean he he goes for the dog option you know minutes into the beginning of the movie this isn't a person that we've seen a, a downward slide towards this desperate point he just starts out desperate but yeah no that's a really interesting point and also the fact that you know, maybe the 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 fear of having a child on the way and the responsibilities that that sure. will entail that could all contribute to it. But again, the movie doesn't seem that interested in um, investigating that part of it. It just happens to be there in the background, and it's up to your own interpretation. Or at least, again, uh, to us as Westerners, maybe we're missing some aspect of that relationship yeah. um, that 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 doesn't come right out at us. But I mean, it it it's still again. Not being able to understand something fully is not a failing. I don't think of the movie, and it's certainly, and I don't think it's a failing of as of a failing on me as an audience member. You know, this goes back to what Bong Joon Ho said about reading subtitles, right? It it opens up the world, and sometimes that's frustrating, and sometimes you need to struggle a little to really, you know, understand what you're seeing. But that's one of the joys of seeking out a movie that doesn't bend itself to Western eyes. I think that's true. I think that it asks something of us. There is something very familiar about this movie, though, that I wanted to ask you about. You kind of hinted at this before. Um, The academic uh, gentleman uh, is not our protagonist, that actually there's an intertwining of stories. And I think you could legitimately call this a coincidence film, Mm. where we start off with two seemingly disparate characters who are brought together by fate. And under other circumstances, that is a... Uh, 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 sandwich I'm not interested in. And yet, I think it kind of works well for this movie. Doug, how do you feel about coincidence films like this? And does this one work, or is there a little bit too much whimsy involved? I mean, I don't think it's so whimsical. I mean, the... the uh, the the point where these two stories meet comes where uh, Hyun Nam's char- uh, character, she is running after Yoon Ju because he has just murdered a dog and she's trying to chase him down. Um, there is a lot of coincidence on in regards to these kind of plot lines meeting, but the whole point of this movie is that the uh, ecosystem that we're watching is just this kind of set of yeah. apartments in this apartment complex. And, and for the, for the purpose of this movie, that's almost the entire world that we're going to be exposed to. So I don't know if we're necessarily supposed to take uh, a lot of what we're seeing, you know, completely 100% literal. Um, not that it's, again, not that it, it has kind of a surrealistic edge to it. It's just that it is about comical dog murder. Um, but, the, the, but, the fact, <laughs> but the fact that these plot lines are playing out and we're seeing characters react to these extreme circumstances at the same time, boy, it, does, it didn't bother me in this like it might bother me in a romantic comedy where we're supposed to see these characters link up in a very kind of cutesy way. Maybe it's because it's so dark that it doesn't really... That, 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 to me, I find it more interesting. Well, and I also think it doesn't do it in a way that has some sort of heavy meaning. Like, I do think there is some thought in this movie and there's some hints of uh, directions director Bong would go after this. But it isn't a message film. I, I think when you're talking about something like uh, 
what's like let's say that abomination crash you know like that's <laughs> that's too much that's that not only is your structure asking a lot it also is only there to make some sort of bad point and that's not the case here these two people's lives make sense that they would intersect they live in close proximity to each other um but it is true that someone could say well but the way that they intertwine it, it has become this kind of story has become a bit of a cliche hmm. and i think if there was a message that it was serving or if it was more cutesy and you're right to point out they are directly connected by her seeing him throw a dog from the roof so i think that's actually a fun way for us to find out <laughs> um, but there is a bit more coincidence later that brings them back together and i think that's where it kind of flirts with it but i almost feel like any feeling of like a, a, a quirky coincidence angle only helps me appreciate the darkness that is also in this film because it is a truly dark comedy. <laughs> By the way, if, if uh, listeners have seen this movie, the, the female lead in this movie, I know that you mentioned her earlier, is Duna Bay, who you might recognize from her work with the Wachowskis uh, in Cloud Atlas and Sense8. That's what what I recognized her from. She's also in The Host, but, uh, but you know, the... the I didn't immediately connect her with those roles as I was watching this movie because it's it's much older. Yeah, that's true. That's fair. Um, I wanted to also ask you, you know, I am not – I, I want to be clear. When, when Parasite won, a bunch of people popped out of the woodwork presenting themselves as experts on South Korean film. And, uh-huh. <laughs> and some of them, I think, were. And some of them – I had seen a couple, so I will more than willingly throw myself into I've seen a couple sort of camp. But what's weird is I don't know if it's a style that is popular or whatever, but I I start I've started to suspect that there is an aesthetic common to the South Korean films that have made their way into my orbit, mm. and I was wondering if that's the same for you as well. Like, um, not that the plots are that similar, but the the harshness of the stories. I wouldn't say there's a huge gap between this and something like Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance in that um, it, it's less interested in some sort of fancy, uh, uh, amazing camera work and more in like a very kind of direct and uh, uncompromising storytelling. Uh, and, and I was wondering if, if that is maybe like an actual uh, aesthetic strain in South Korean cinema or if it's just like a few directors have some common threads and that's about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, it's interesting because my understanding is that a lot of these directors have re- a relationship with one another, right? right. And, and a mutual appreciation and influence on one another. And whether it be um, like Park Chan-wook or um, uh, Kim Ji-woon who directed I Saw the Devil. I mean, right, these, are exactly. di- these are directors who have plumbed some very disturbing material and are willing to go to extremes in in terms of what they're willing to present. Um, I mean, I do think that part of that is going back to that idea of making films for the audience of where you're from and knowing where those limits are and maybe knowing how to push those limits. I mean, when Park Chan-wook made Old Boy, I don't think he was making a movie that he was hoping Americans would love. I think he was making a movie that he loved and that he thought South, a South Korean audience would love. So I think that there's an element there where sometimes it seems extreme or foreign or dark, and not that those movies don't are not are not aiming for those things, but they might even seem more extreme simply because they're so different than what we're used to seeing. But yeah, there's no way that it's a coincidence that uh, you know this this whole. Um, a group of directors all started putting out really challenging and um, and really interesting movies that that were willing to go to extreme places. Yeah, I definitely. There was a time when uh, a, a, another festival that we will jump into at a time. The Philadelphia Film Fest had a section called Danger After Dark, and mm-hmm. the person who was booking that was booking a lot of Korean films, and I had such a success rate that I started going to every Korean film I could find that played the festival, which turned out it once I got outside of genre cinema, I realized that I was being reductive because it turns out a lot of bad comedies and other things sure, coming of out course. of South Korea. Mm-hmm. But, you know, because I, what I had seen was these extreme movies and not, all, not that they were all aesthetically similar, but, you know, I went from horror to other sort of extremities to like, even like gangster films and enjoyed all of them. And then I remember going to see a romantic comedy that featured a lot of, um, 
uh, slapping of your girlfriend. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. My bad for thinking I was going to like everything. <laughs> like, that's that's my fault for thinking I was just going to go to every South Korean film and have a good time. Um, well, you know, I, I, I want to make sure we have time for your selection. But uh, <laughs> I, I want to make sure we, you know, highlight that uh, while I – you know, for me, this isn't going on the same level as Memories of Murder or uh, even Parasite. Uh, I think I think this was a really great film, and it was really cool to see the roots mm-hmm. of a director who I've really come to appreciate. Yeah, this is a Bong Joon Ho movie. Uh, it, it, I, if you are familiar with his other films, you can see the nascent versions of a lot of what he would tread later on. Uh, maybe some of his later movies are more palatable to. Uh, to maybe Western taste, and some of them aren't, I would think. But you can see the the themes and the willingness to push boundaries here that would basically define a lot of the rest of his career. So, I mean, this, to me, it's like you can't really understand him, I don't think, as a filmmaker without eventually checking this movie out. I agree. I agree. Well, let's take a break, and then you're going to come back and tell us about this other movie that can't possibly matter as much as this one. <laughs> Bist du immer noch wach? Billy Shears. Wer ist denn Billy Shears? Der Doppelgänger von Paul McCartney. Das ist Billy Shears. Billy Shears war ein junger Musiker aus Liverpool, der zufälligerweise am 6. Oktober 1960 mit den Beatles im Kaiserkeller in Hamburg spielte. Bis auf seine viel zu große Nase glich er Paul McCartney bis aufs Haar. Am 17. November 1960 wurde er im Raum neben Paul McCartney und Pete Best im Bambi-Kino einquartiert. Die Beatles fangen an, im Top-Ten-Club zu spielen. Billy Shears hat die Witze über seine Nase satt. A people finds out that Paul McCartney has died and the public had not been informed at all. It's Paul is Dead from the year 2000, directed by Hank Handelokden, uh, who directed Learning to Lie in 2003 and Summer Window from 2011, also uh, written by him. Now, his writing credits actually include a movie I have seen aside from this one, which is the wonderful Goodbye Lenin from 2003, an amazing German movie. Very good, very good. Yeah, yeah, one that's very, very worthwhile and made me, in fact, it was that credit that made me want to choose Choose Paul is Dead to watch for this podcast. Now, the uh, the cast, is, again, are full of young actors, ones that I don't remember seeing in other films. It has Sebastian Erzendowski as Tobias, who's probably around 12, 13-year-old, right on the cusp of manhood. And this movie takes place in 1980s Germany. Uh, and uh, Tobias is this Beatles-obsessed kid who um, ha- basically spends all of his time with a, with a friend of his and his older brother. And we're... we're treated to his life over a period of months where he is both uh, discovering the the conspiracy theory that Paul McCartney died in the, the mid-1960s and was replaced by a double, but also, you know, d- discovering himself and finding out what he wants to do with his life and trying to mature into uh, an adult to some form. Uh, a coming-of-age movie, I'll be honest with you, Liam, coming-of-age movies are not really my thing, uh, mostly because they tend to present... Uh, what is supposed to be a recognizable reality to everyone in the audience. And I don't feel like I can relate to a lot of that. But I, there's something about this movie that I felt really connected with. And maybe it's not that I was as Beatles-obsessed kid or anything like that, but certainly I could recognize that that when I was of that age, where I hadn't reached <laughs> maturity, so to speak, uh, that I, you, know, you, you might have these flights of fancy that still felt uh, important to you that when you shared with someone who might be even just a year older than you, who was going through a kind of a different transitionary period, that that it just seems like kid stuff. And in this case, you see kind of these three stages of people. You see Tobias, you see his friend who kind of pines for this other girl. You see his older brother who is with this girl who is rapidly losing interest in him. And you see all of this occurring at once. And there's also this kind of minor mystery element kind of going on in the background about, you know, the, the a person who is driving a car that presumably was on the Abbey Road cover and Tobias kind of uh, tracking him around during kind of a lengthy summer at the time. So I don't know if you connect with this at all. I know that you're a big music fan. You're a punk, Liam. You're a punk uh, guy who likes punk music. And there's a little bit of punk music on display in this movie. So maybe you enjoyed that part. But what did you What did you think of Paul is Dead? Uh, I, You know, it's very interesting. I, I actually found it very amusing in a lot of ways. Um, 
I, I, you know, I really don't connect with this in mm. that I've, um, I've always been interested in certain kinds of conspiracy theories, but they're not usually related to like pop icons per Interesting. se. Um, uh, and I've never really particularly cared about the Beatles. I, I will agree. <laughs> it's fun seeing this Beatles obsessed kid in a Germany that clearly has discovered punk music and the director goes out of his way to have <laughs> needle drops throughout the film to remind you that punk is happening punk is all around him the the record store owner the guy who drives the beetle there's all these opportunities for this kid to discover punk and he's stuck in the past with his yeah. brother and his brother's friend folk obsessing over every minutia of the beetles but that's kind of interesting right it's kind of a reminder of the cultural moment right and the cultural impact that the beatles had not just you know in our sort of world but across the world and but so it's also oh, it's also somewhat symbolic though right i mean right. that he that 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 he is resisting this transformation transformation into what is actually happening happening in yeah. 1980s germany and instead he is stuck in this period that that uh and not only is he stuck in it that he is ruminating and obsessing about these details that in the grand scheme are either complete fantasy or just kind of unimportant I think in some sense, though, that represents him not growing up, that this right. is like a part of his childhood while his brother's, you know, desperately trying to become a man and mostly failing. Um, <laughs> it, it, he's he's trying to let go. Well, he's not trying to let go. He's trying to not let go of his own kind of childhood obsession, which is the Beatles and dreams of being a rock star. Um, I will say, though, and, and I think this is good to talk to you about, uh, the B story, you know, like so that if the A story is Tobias, right? The B story is his brother and right. his relationship with Tessa. And I found that confusing. Um I I, I don't know, maybe I missed something here and I wanted to ask you about it. Like <laughs> like what other than the, they go out of the way to find an opportunity to screw, which, you know, that part I more vibed with was like <laughs> What? How are we going to find time to like get to know each other in the biblical sense? Mm-hmm. Um, that that I kind of got, but then he has this experience where he can't perform, too much pressure, whatever mm-hmm. it is, and then their relationship like falls apart in what felt to me a very fast way. Now, granted, these are young people and stuff happens, but I felt like maybe I missed something. Like, yeah, by the time it's fully like she's yelling at him outside a bar, I'm like, why? What happened? What did I miss? I, I don't know. And I, I wanted to ask you about that. I do think that it's just I don't think it really necessarily goes further than the idea of these brief infatuations that occur uh, with these characters where, you know, they have this connection. There is some frank sexuality on display. I I guess you could interpret it that because he was unable to perform that she rejects him. But I don't think you're necessarily supposed to interpret it that way. No, she it's goes more... to the party to find him, right? Yeah, She goes exactly. to that party because she wants to – and then he's not at the party. Yeah. So maybe that's part of it. But I just I, – I felt like there was one more scene I needed to understand what happened between them. Yeah. I, I mean it, it, it is a very kind of unresolved thing. But it also I, I think is suggesting the fickleness of that age group and the, the fact that, that – this relationship is kind of transitory and uh, just, you know, even as that character, because like you said, his older brother is moving away from the the sort of innocence of this kind of Beatles infatuation and he's getting more interested in girls and that's part of his life. But what he finds from that is not something that's very satisfying for himself. He finds sure. a lot of heartbreak and hurt in it as well. Uh, so I think it kind of maybe is just supposed to suggest the two sides of it, right? Where Tobias is moving towards something that that really is a necessary step for him uh, in, in terms of maturity, that there's also the the pain that's going to come with that at some point. Well, and let's not ignore this is a threefold path, right? Because then we have Helmet, yeah. who is fucking making a tape for a girl who's never going to be interested in him. Yeah. No matter how hard he works on that tape. That was maybe the most identifiable, identifiable part of the film for me, was the <laughs> making of the tape for no reason. Uh, but... I guess the you know the, the to give you guys an idea here, like it's not just that he obsesses over what happened to Paul McCartney, whether Paul is dead or not. They 
eventually make the logical leap that somehow their jan- the janitor at the school is involved. <laughs> it, it's and, interesting because it starts with these factual things. You know, it always reminds me of, of Room 237, the documentary, where things that it starts from a point of, okay, I can make that logical leap. Maybe what Stanley Kubrick meant was that this uh, hotel was built on an Indian burial ground because they do have indigenous and indian uh iconography all over the place and there is you know there's these ghosts so maybe you can make that leap and then once you make that leap well maybe you could make the leap to you know the imagery of the fact that that the halls don't make sense and they don't all connect together like they should geographically that that's a part of it as well and if you make that leap maybe you can make a leap to stanley kubrick staging the moon landing and all of that sort of thing and these kids are going through that same sort of process where Tobias is is given this information about Paul McCartney being dead by this record store owner and he he tells it to him like this it's this amazing secret that nobody knows about that he can't tell anyone about and then he gives him some of the clues and once you start looking for those clues then you start to see clues everywhere and I'll tell you there's something about people buying into conspiracy theories which feels super relatable in the year 2020 uh and the idea that that once you're into a certain depth that uh, that there's no looking outwards, that you can only accept that as the full truth. I, I, I've i never bought into the Paul McCartney is dead theory because it's absolutely ridiculous, but I still kind of love it because it's so... There's Aside from, from the idea of someone maybe yelling at Paul McCartney himself, it's kind of harmless, especially now so far removed from that era. It's actually sure. kind of quaint and simple, but I mean, it's certainly something that, that was sort of recognizable and and as you mentioned so they're looking they're studying the abbey road cover and they see this uh the car uh, the bug that has the license plate that that tobias actually ends up seeing in person um and then he thinks that this person was involved with the murder and then looking into the background of the cover he sees a person that vaguely looks like their janitor so they become obsessed that that's the person so again there's these kind of fantastical um uh, almost uh, espionage aspects to it because they're also kind of uh, scoping around the city with their binoculars and writing down all the things they see throughout the day. It's this fantasy that is actually starts to become a little too real as we get closer to the end of the movie. Yeah, I I have a real mixed relationship with conspiracy theories. I think um, it's really easy to uh, to write them off in the age of shit like Pizzagate. Like, you know sure. what I mean? Like. It, it, you know when when Quanon is out here saying the craziest, stupidest shit you've ever heard, it's really easy to say, "Oh yeah, conspiracy theories come from a crazy, stupid place," uh, you know. But then, like, you know, the Tuskegee Airmen or the Tuskegee sure. uh, medical experiments, or Iran Contra, or there's so many things where that sound just as crazy that you start to find out are true. That you're like, oh wait, then other, you know. So for me, uh, something like Paul McCartney is dead. It's just a reminder that life is different now on the internet. That like, you know, in in reality, all you need is Instagram to know who is actually dead at any one time. You know, right. like it's it's just you know that that we we live in a different era. Uh, but I also don't. I think it maybe comes from a place of finding the Beatles more mysterious and sure. wondering about their authenticity more and all that sort of th- like there's just more mystery to them uh, to me that's uh that's corny old men who made music it's there's no mis- mystery there there's no <laughs> there's nothing there's nothing to like draw me in and wonder about their inner worlds enough to be interested in a conspiracy theory you know like uh, something about like you know the government distributed crack that's sure. an attempt. That's an attempt to explain an actual disaster that doesn't make sense. But this is now, something that you could probably relate to, though, Liam, as someone who who grew up loving music and still loves music. And maybe you didn't feel this, but when I was like a teenager, the musicians that I loved, it felt like they had some sort of special insight into the world that I didn't have. Now, as I got older, the the belief in that insight really diminished uh, quickly. But I still hold a lot of nostalgia for the time when I felt like you know there was a better understanding of how the world worked or how uh, maybe emotions and relationships worked. And you know, when I was listening to the Smiths when I was thirteen or fourteen years old, it felt like they could unlock a lot of things that that now I I feel like a lot of I mean I still love some a lot of the Smith stuff that are not connected directly to Morrissey, but I mean it that that it's still it still has that kind of emotional connection to me, but, and, and we have uh, Tobias at that age where he might still be making those kind of connections. I never had that experience. No. Interesting. 
Uh, In fact, I would write it off completely and sound like a real jerk off because I think it's like (laughs) a real jerk off thing to say, like, I don't idolize rock stars. Uh, But I I, I did have a bit of that experience with Stephen King that I was obsessed with his books at a young age. And and I did feel like he had some sort of magic in the world. But, you know, I didn't remember the names of rock stars for the most part. And I only remember the names of rappers because that was the only way to know who they were. You know what I mean? Like, like I knew LL Cool J's name. I, I, I only knew Chuck D and Flavor Flav's name. I couldn't remember the other guys in public. Enemy <laughs> life. You know, and you only remember Terminator X's name because they say it over and over. <laughs> Terminator X. Terminator X. <laughs> uh, but like the part of the appeal, you know, I didn't really get obsessed with music to the point where I started to learn things about it. Uh, uh, until I got into punk, and the whole thing with punk was that that they weren't important, and that mm. you weren't supposed to idolize them. And like the, you know, when I was fifteen and I was at a show, and someone was asking these dudes for autographs, I was like, "Well, that's a that dude's a noob. He clearly doesn't know what's going on because you don't ask for a fucking autograph. <laughs> what? Who asked for an autograph? You know what I mean? Like that was the world. And and it, you know, there was plenty of time for me before that to care about music. I liked Michael Jackson and stuff, but a lot of my imagination space that probably would have allowed me to idolize musicians that way was straight up taken up by Stephen King that I was that's really interesting. So obsessed with his writing. Like I read my first Stephen King book in third grade. And after that, I was, you know, I was reading like massive texts all through grade school of his. Uh, Now, you could argue that's because his writing isn't that dense you know maybe this is actually a bad thing for him that a fourth grader got through it and basically got, got the <laughs> hey, whole thing these things happen to a lot of people right i mean it, it does carve yeah. out uh the sensibility i think going forward so i it's not that i don't identify with it at all but i just never associated it with music but don't and- you think i mean I, i'm sorry to interrupt here Liam, but i'm having trouble coming to terms with this a little bit if only because you must find musicians educational in some way Right, I mean, because they're, they're, no. it's not. I mean, they're not necessarily speaking down to you, but when they're talking about their own experiences, and that's in punk music all the time, right? But I mean, it's especially hard to reconcile because a lot. You know, I know I joke about it on our podcast, but a defining aspect of your lifestyle comes from an ethos from music. I don't think of that as like didactic, though. Uh, like I, I don't. I mean, I think to to an extent. Um, I a I I'm at an age now where I'm not really idolizing that, but when I was sure, a kid, I mean the closest the uh, I guess part of the thing is that all of these people also seem flawed, you know. Like sure, I learned about Straight Edge from Ian McKay, who at that point was in Fugazi. Now, forty year old Liam thinks Fugazi is brilliant. Fifteen uh, year old Liam thought <laughs> that Fugazi was whack, and Ian McKay was a dumb sellout, <laughs> and that was true of every. Well, okay, so what's the next Strangers band? Well, I like, really like Youth of Today. Oh, well, all those dudes are actually Hari Krishnas now, and they sold out as well. So it's like everything <laughs> was flawed, you know. Like everything came with its own failures built in, and the appeal was not the bands per se. Uh, with, with you know, with a few exceptions, but the the people who seemed like truly astounding to me i didn't think of them as as shaping my life that way i i thought of them more as like freaks like as like (laughs) what's what set them apart was how scary they were or how violent they were or how unwilling they were to compromise which is you know the mark of a crazy person so like that you know as much as i that music shaped me i think the only part of it that at all was uh in some sense, like directly educational was uh, stuff I got from other people who I interacted with in it and not just the idea that like uh, specific bands or anything like that, you know, Um, I I will say some of that changed later and that I could learn about things I didn't know about. So like, especially when I got back into hip hop, there was a lot of stuff in rap lyrics that I learned from, but that was like, maybe this is embarrassing to admit that was more in my twenties. Like I was sure. looking up stuff like, yo, Karis once said this, what's that about? You know, or I don't know what they're talking about in this root song. Like that was like, like that was a form of education there. Um, and then, you know, some of the things I thought were just spooky in some like hardcore band lyrics turned out to be connected to like histories of things. You know, I eventually learned about the process church and stuff like that, that I didn't know about at first, but yeah, I, I don't know that it's, the same as the relationship in this movie, except for like with Stephen King. Like when I was a kid, it was like the idea that I could have met Stephen King, I would have started crying on the spot. Interesting. Very interesting. Shit. 
Yeah. But do you feel? I mean, I don't think you. Would no, I don't even. I don't even enjoy his books anymore. Like I don't even. I'm like not into it that way. I mean, they have a nostalgia for me, and I'll sure. watch. I'll watch every movie based on his books, even though they're bad, for the most part. <laughs> um, but like I, I, you know, before those it movies, I tried to reread it, and I don't enjoy it the way I once did. But again, I read it so young. It's also so familiar. Like I started reading it going, oh, yeah, here it is. So it's like, and maybe that's comforting for some people, but I don't take that kind of comfort in books, right. uh, that familiarity. Interesting. In this movie in particular, the, the punk music that, that plays on the, the seams of the story is almost exclusively The Clash. And right. that was a band that was very transformative for me as a teenager, right? And it was kind of a marker of my own you know, move towards a more, you know, forgive the term, mature music, but a music that was, was to my mind, and again, I know that this is something that, that you don't feel yourself, was educational because it was talking about things that I really had no idea about. This fucking idiot kid in small town Newfoundland, it, it felt like it was opening up the world a little bit. And maybe that's just something that was kind of specific to my circumstance at the time, but it brought me to, you know, a lot of other musicians. You know, I love Billy Bragg, who obviously is a very political musician. Oh, I yeah, feel like definitely. I feel like a lot of my political uh, consciousness was awakened by that period of my life where I was really interested in those kind of musicians. Um, now, not that that plays into what we're watching here, but it is something that I felt uh, relatable in terms of what was going on. This movie is kind of bookended by the this kind of march towards maturity, which ends with the death of John Lennon at the very end of the movie. It kind of jumps forward a little bit, and you see... Um, our lead character, and he's sort of grown up a little bit. He's made friends with a, a, a guy in his class, and they're starting a band and, and that sort of thing. But it really ends with this kind of um, kind of kind of. It, it's really kind of a bookend to the idea. It's like it not only uh, is he leaving childhood behind, that there has to be kind of a traumatic marker to to. Uh, mark that point exactly, which would have been the murder of of John Lennon. And I guess you know, in terms of relatability this wasn't for me because it wasn't something that was i cared that much about at the time but you know people feel i think a lot of people of my age group feel like when uh kirk cobain shot himself that 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 was the end of a certain part of their life and they use that as a marker from going on and i don't want to compare it to traumatic things like 9 11 but there are these things in our life that become these marking points for when you see yourself before then and after them as kind of a changed person i think that's fair and i think it for this movie it it's dramatic. It might be almost too dramatic for a film that is in some ways very lighthearted. Yes. But I think it, I think it worked honestly. And it, and it was a way to respect the character. The, the, his, his delusion is robbed from him so harshly. Like he's just denied like, no, this isn't real. That at least I felt a little bit of compassion for him and a little bit of like, God, that's hard. Um, so having that little bit of ring of that the teacher is going to New York right when John Lennon is assassinated, it mm-hmm. might be a little glib for some people, <laughs> but I, I thought it was great. I thought it was a, a solid ending to an interesting film. So just to give a little bit more detail on that, and the reason I kind of have to is that this movie is not easy to find. Uh, it's actually really hard to find. I'm guessing the reason for that is that it has a whole lot of Beatles songs on the soundtrack, and that's yep. a difficult thing to license. And not just Beatles songs, right? I mean, there's a lot of music in this that would be really difficult to license for such a you know visibly small uh, feature, and a German one at that. Um, but the there is um, there's this story going on where Tobias he suspects that this gentleman who has the bug with the license plate that was on the Abbey Road cover is in his town. And then that person that he's been following around ends up being his teacher at school. And like you said, he ends up going to New York and the, 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 um, the idea in this conspiracy theory that is that he was somehow involved in Paul McCartney's death, and then at the end, then maybe he was involved in John Lennon's as well, to kind of both mark the end of the fantasy and also continue it in some uh, in some form. But uh, there's a scene in this, Liam, and I just I never I didn't understand it while I was watching it, where Tobias breaks into the house or the apartment of the record store guy. The guy who told him about this conspiracy theory in the first place. And he's looking for him and, and he's not there. So, uh, But he hears people enter. And so he hides and uh, into the room walks the record store owner and this teacher. And at one point, the teacher pulls out a gun and just starts shooting it randomly. And this leads Tobias to run off. Now, that is the most kind of explicit proof 
quote unquote, that this fantasy that's in his head actually might be uh, connected to some sort of reality. How literal do you think we're supposed to take that part? I actually think you're supposed to take it entirely literally. Mm-hmm. Because my, my thought is, if you take him out of the wall, right, and you take into account, A, we already know the record store owner knows this guy because we see them in the bar together. That's right. And B, and I'm projecting a little bit here, but I, I wonder if other people got this vibe too. It feels homoerotic. It yes, feels like- it absolutely 100% does. I totally thought that they were just going to start making out or something like that, and maybe that is what they did. Yeah, and that's entirely possible. But for me, I took it literally only in the sense of like something crazy is happening here that is only that much crazier because he's in the wall. Yeah. And if he's not in the wall, it's kind of crazy. But like, you know, if you were like, yo, when I was a owned a punk record store in Germany <laughs> in 1980, whatever, uh, a dude came over and we were about to make out and then he shot a gun. That's not that crazy a story. That sounds sure. actually like well yeah okay I could see that like I think <laughs> I think it's uh I think it's only within the context of like uh, Tobias is so alienated from the adult world that's right. partly why he's so easily fooled by this Paul McCartney is dead thing because like he has no concept of the world around him it's really it's really weird mm-hmm. it's sort of exemplified by like when he goes and yells at the bank teller yes. so part of the story we haven't really highlighted for y'all is uh their parents are away. That's why Tobias and his brother have so much freedom to do all this crazy stuff. The parent hit their mother is away and she's left money. Specifically their mother is away with her fiance. I think they say. Yes. So the suggestion is that their father has passed away too. So, so yeah, so they're, they're basically, this is like summer vacation without anybody uh, looking after them. And apparently she's left an allowance for them at the bank and they can come get it once a week. And the brother shows or uh, our main character Tobias shows up one day early for his money no particular reason why and he's yelling about it like a crazy person and i it was just a reminder to me of like this guy lives in a fantasy world like he really just does not again not in the sense that he has mental health issues but i mean in the sense of like he has not yet had to be an adult in any discernible way right and that maybe that was part of what i found so alienating about this by the time i was his age i don't you know i wasn't fully mature but i had done enough adult stuff to know like if you go in the bank and yell no one's giving you anything <laughs> <laughs> you know like that's not how that works you can't just follow a guy in a car on your bike and figure this out you know what i mean you, you certainly you know don't trust something a random dude in a record store tells you like i just <laughs> it's it, 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 it was his naivete that was part of my being like it didn't make the movie bad it was still very amusing but i thought i don't know who this kid is so i mean uh, Kind of gathering our final thoughts on it. These two movies that we've talked about on this podcast could hardly be more different. From the subject matter to the kind of performances to the genre that we're actually talking about, coming of age and dark comedy, they 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 don't even really meet at any real point that I could uh, think of thematically. I mean, it was weird when the kids started killing all those dogs. <laughs> He's German. What is he going to do? <laughs> um, but uh, in terms of which one is superior, well... I don't know if I can make that decision, Liam. I guess we'll have to leave it up to our audience. Unfortunately, as we mentioned before, Paul is Dead is a very difficult movie to find. Barking Dogs Never Bite is available to watch on the Plex streaming service, uh, which if you use the software Plex, they actually have movies that you can watch for free on it, uh, as well as the movie streaming service. That's M-U-B-I, which is uh, available. I don't know if that's available in Canada, but currently you can watch the movie on both of those services. It's pretty easy to find movie compared certainly to um, to... Paul is dead. Yeah. Which movie's better, Liam? I mean, look, I get what you're saying, that it's hard to compare the two, but mine is better. (laughs) I have to say, if I was going to revisit one of these, I think I might revisit Paul is dead before I did Barking Dogs Never Bite, which is not necessarily a sign of which one is better. Certainly, Barking Dogs Never Bite is a more challenging movie, I think, in a lot of ways. But I also feel like it is less sure of what it is and what it wants to be compared to Paul is dead. Paul is dead feels like a more mature work i think and that is not uh, that is not a harsh criticism of barking dogs i just think that uh it's a movie that i feel is uh, a more satisfying viewing experience for me also you're a coward hey so why is that why also, am i a coward sir it's too harsh for you you can't take how hard it's harshing your vibes i'm a wussy little cuck boy <laughs> <laughs> everyone knows it 
I get it all the time on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, but again, I'd love uh, for our audience to check out both of these movies or either of these movies and let us know what they think. They can do that, of course, over at cinemasmorgasbord.com or on Twitter at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G. Leo, if they want to check out the latest episodes of Cinema Smorgasbord or other podcasts of note, what's the best way for them to do so? They should head over to cinepunks.com. There's a whole family of podcasts there, as well as essays and, and other tidbits for you to enjoy. You can also follow Cinepunks on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It's all C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. And if- so check check that out. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Liam Rules, R-U-L-Z, but you don't want to do that. You I do. Think what you want to do is follow Doug Tilly. That's uh, Doug underscore Tilly. Tilly spelled T-I-L-L-E-Y. That's excellent, Liam. I'm, you're getting very good at promoting me on this podcast. I appreciate it very much. If you are a listener of Cinema Smorgasbord or just interested in what we're doing, you can go over and uh, support us through the Cinepunks Patreon, uh, or you can always uh, rate us on iTunes. We appreciate every one of those, and feedback is always appreciated. We have a lot of different themed podcasts on the network, including ones devoted to actors as diverse as Jackie Chan, as Dick Miller, as Carol Kane. Yeah, we have all sorts of podcasts. Go check those out right now but for now it's time for us to say good night we're going to be back pretty soon with another two genre classics to pit against one another say good night liam night night <laughs>